I'm going to be reading from the book of Hebrews, chapter 6. Uh, the book of Hebrews is written to Jewish believers in the early church, but it is relevant and important for the church today as in the day it was written. So I will begin reading verse 13. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. So that by two unchangeable things, in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain, where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Jim, I appreciate it. Let me ask you a question. When you want to emphasize something, what do you do? How do you do that? There are a lot of different ways. When you know something has to count, when you want to make sure you get your point across, when you need someone to pay attention, when you need them to hear, when you need them to respond, when you want them to know 100% this matters to you, I wonder the, what you do, how you try to get that message across. Do you raise your voice that gets a little bit louder so that people know you mean business? Do you, maybe you talk with your hands and the gestures get a little bit bigger. So you're communicating, I want you, I need you to pay attention. Maybe if you're typing the message, you type it in all caps with lots of exclamation points or lots of emojis to know I really mean this. I really want you to pay attention. Maybe you put your hand in the air, raise it before God to say like, I, I'm serious here. Or maybe there's a lot of verbal things that you do, whether you say, I promise, or I mean it, or listen, or trust me. There are all these different ways that, that we have to communicate. This is really, really important to me. I want to make sure that you're listening. We all have our ways, and a lot of those kinds of things are actually going on in the passage that Jim read a moment ago for us. The writer of Hebrews has a big point to make in this passage, and he layers and layers and just piles on layers of emphasis so that we don't miss it. He uses intense words, and we're going to look at what those intense words to make sure you and I don't miss it. And it's not like he uses one, he uses several. He even brings a legal vocabulary, brings that into multiple places in this passage so that we get very clearly the point that he's trying to make. And that big point is this, that you can trust God to keep his promises, which seems elementary. I mean, it seems like ever, we would almost take that for granted. And yet the writer of Hebrews is going to do everything possible under the direction of the Holy Spirit to make sure we understand that, that we can trust God to keep his promises. So a couple different places I want us to go. I do want you to see the layers of intensity 
in the words that the writer of Hebrews has. I, I want us to look at kind of the first part of that passage that Jim read. And I just want you to appreciate the ways in which God is trying to emphasize, reemphasize, and make sure we don't, we don't miss it. We don't miss the point. And then I want, want to follow that with, okay, in light of the, all that emphasis, what do we do with it? If God's trying to reemphasize his promises to us that we can trust him to keep his promises, what do we do in light of that? How do we respond? What is that supposed to do for us? So the intensity that I, I read and as I've reread that I, that I feel begins in verse 13 and I think really even goes to 18. The passage is a, somewhat about Abraham, but mostly about God, right? So let's begin reading in verse 13. And I want you to listen for the intense words, and I'll try to call our attention to, as well as the legal words, try to call our attention to those as well, for when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater, so there's an intense word, no one greater by whom to swear, and that's a legal word there, no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, and here's another intense word, surely, I will bless you and multiply you. You kind of track what's going on when God made a promise to Abraham. So that invites us to think about God's promises. We said a few weeks ago, a description that we could give is God's promises are those initial statements of God's intention, followed by either God giving a gift or performing an action at a later time. Those initial statements of intention, God says, I'm going to do this, that's a promise, followed by the giving of a gift or a performance of an action at a later time. When God made a promise, this particular promise that God made to Abraham that was sealed with this, like, surely I will bless you and multiply you, this particular promise comes from Genesis 22. If you read the story of Genesis 22, and some of you, several of you will probably be very familiar with that. That is the passage where Abraham is called on to trust God as God calls on Abraham to sacrifice his one and only son. Like the one where there would be descendants. This is the only, kind of the only sign that God's going to keep his promise. And God calls on Abraham to take this big step of faith. And Abraham responds in faith. And God, you remember, withholds Abraham's hand. Isaac lives and has children. What it says, though, is God made a promise after that. And God actually authenticated that promise by the wording is swearing, which certainly doesn't mean profanity. It means like a, 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 legal, a legal implication, strong words to say, I mean this. I'm being truthful. I'm going to do what I say. There, there's an intense layer to this. You swear by someone greater. So here's the idea. Someone who has more authority or importance, you appeal to them. You say, you may not trust me, but I'm going to swear by someone greater than I am. And you appeal to that authority. It's much what we do when we have something notarized. We recognize, like, I'm not saying this on my own accord. I'm saying this with the state, with the county, with whoever's recognition. This is valid. You can trust this. So when you you swear by someone who has greater authority, greater importance. And the, and the idea here is that there is no one greater than God. So when God wants to make sure you know he means business, make sure you know you can trust him, who else is he going to swear by? He swears by. He becomes a witness himself to his own trustworthiness, his own reliability, because there is no one higher. God offers himself as a witness, a witness to a promise. And here's the promise. 
God makes to Abraham, I will surely bless you. I will cause you to have many descendants. You're going to have children. You're going to have grandchildren. And you're going to have many descendants. You will multiply. And he swears, he confirms it. Are you tracking so far? Notice in verse 15 how God, how Abraham responded to God's promise. It says in verse 15, and thus Abraham, having patiently waited, which means he was willing to trust God for a long time and through very, very hard things, he obtained or received the promise. He waited, he was patient, and he received what God had promised. What God had promised happened to him. The patience was tense, and the patience was tough. But we're we're directed here to look at the results of the promise. Look at what happened to Abraham. Verse 12 told us, like, let's imitate those who had faith and received promises. Let's look at Abraham and see how he believed and hung on. Here's something we could imitate. The writer of Hebrews, again, I, I want you to see, to see how it's not enough for him to just remind you God's made promises. He wants to emphasize and underline and highlight and, and go over it again and again. That's what verse 15 is all about, or verse 16. It says, kind of being, bringing us back into layers of intensity and explanation. He says, for this is what people do. People swear by something greater than themselves. Hear that intensity again. And in all, and here's the legal terminology, in all their disputes, when someone takes an oath, when someone has a sworn affidavit, when someone says, so help me God, when someone has an oath in all their disputes, that's final for confirmation. An oath, an oath is that definitive spoken word. It's a binding aspect of that spoken word, meaning like we're going to have to assume this side of heaven that you're telling the truth. We can't search hard. We don't know everything, but we're going to assume when you take that sort of oath that we can move forward. And it reminds us here, those oaths are final for confirmation. No one argues. We move forward on this. We can can get a verdict. We can make a decision. So you keep that in mind. This is like settled legal terminology. Like this is final. This is enough. There's not one more thing that we can throw in here. This is what God is trying to communicate and trying to emphasize. So with all that as a background, when you come to, come to verse 17 and it says this, such important words. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose. When God wanted to do that, he guaranteed it with an oath so that we wouldn't just have one unchangeable thing, we would have two unchangeable things, an oath and a promise in which it's, an impo- it's impossible, an impossibility for God to lie. Do you see the intense words? Impossible, unchangeable, more convincingly. Do you see the legal word God wanted to show that word is interesting because all throughout Greek literature, the, the word show there would be, he wanted to give, offer proof. Here's the evidence. Here's what you can base everything on. You can, here's the evidence. Here's the proof. Here's the demonstration. God desires to give that evidence so that we would know he's reliable. He wanted us to know that. And he's doing it in a more convincing way. He wants us to be massively convinced 
that he is unchangeable in his character. He's not going to change his mind. You might, and I might. He's not going to change his mind. You might have to go to plan B. God's not on plan B, C, D, or E. God has an unchangeable purpose. Do you see how the writer is trying to communicate that? Both with intense words and with legal words saying, there's no other way to make this more clear. You are going to receive what God has promised. And specifically, those verses are interesting because it says, the heirs of the promise. So this is what we know. We know Abraham received the promise. But then it, then it reminds us there are heirs of that promise, descendants of Abraham. And, and I think of even the promises made to Abraham where it's like, in you all the families of the earth are going to be blessed. And so I, I, I hear the writer of Hebrews and I hear the first listeners of the, uh, to this letter that was written going, we receive the promise as well. We stand in this like, in a stream of promises of God, in which now we inherit this promise, which is unchangeable, unshakable, impossible for God to lie. We are heirs of the promise, extends to us even. He guarantees it with an oath. God adds binding words. I mean, this is mind-blowing. He adds binding words that he's most certainly going to do what he said he would do. Two unchangeable, trustworthy things. God has surely said what is true. So if we pause there, and take in all the intense words, all the greaters and surely and more convincingly and unchangeable and impossible, maybe worth even underlining all those in your Bible or highlighting those. And if we take in all the legal words, if we take in all the oath and swearing and settling disputes and giving final confirmation and giving guarantees, take all that together I think a reasonable question to ask, maybe to be asking yourself is, why does he do that? I mean, God can say things once and he means it and it's reliable, but why? Why go through four or five verses just to underline and emphasize and say it again and say it again and say it again and say it again? I don't have the exact mind of God on this. I wouldn't pretend to know exactly why, all the reasons, but I think one one of those reasons surely has to be it's meaningful to God that we find him trustworthy. It, it means something that we, it really matters to our relationship with God, that we see him as trustworthy. His promises are that meaningful to him that he's willing to emphasize it and again and again so that you might go, I got the point, and he says, let me say it again. I got the point, let me say it one more time. Do I need to use the word unchangeable? Do I need to use the word impossible? Do you need to be more convinced do you, do you see why these promises are that meaningful? And so I can, I can go, okay, that would be a reason for emphasis because it really mattered to him. But it doesn't take me long to come to a second reason for this layer, this level of intensity on the emphasis and the reminders. And that is because I desperately need them. And I'm guessing many of us in the room do as well. As much as I'd, I'd like to say, like, I have strong faith, there is a lot that works against believing. I don't want to pretend there's not. I, I want to actually acknowledge straight up that many of the calls and situations and the things that I heard about and I prayed for this week push against sometimes, push against that. Am I going to believe that God 
never leaves, never forsakes, pushes against, does God really work all things, all things including this, including this, including this, all things for our good, pushes against this. And Sean led us in a helpful prayer about our fear. And I think the pain and heartbreak and disappointment and loss, and you begin to go, is it really true? Is it true? Can I... I mean, I believe that, and I know, I've known that, and I've sung the songs, and I've heard the verses for all my life, but then you get something that blindsides you, and you begin to ask. There's sometimes the weariness, sometimes the low-grade, complex situations, the, the work situation, the family situation that just is not clearing up, and you've prayed, and you've asked the Lord, and it's still, still not really resolved yet, and actually, the more you think about it, the less you're really convinced it's ever going to be resolved, and that begins to work against like, I, I don't know where things are with God and his promises. Maybe that's you today. Maybe that's your questions. I wonder if it's the extreme pressure or steady pressure. I wonder if it's the weakness you feel in your flesh to, like, hang on and believe. I wonder if it's the assault of evil demonic forces against your soul, against your heart, against your faith, waging war, making you ask questions, making you process things. Those things start to mess with you. And you get the right set of circumstances and it leaves you empty and gutted, going, I don't know what I believe. I don't know what I think. I'm just not sure. I want to believe. I want to believe that you alone can rescue. You alone can save. I want to believe that but I'm finding it challenging. And God knew in his kindness that this would be a struggle for us. And rather than come at you this morning with scolding words, how could you? I told you once. Why do I ever need to tell you again? I promised this 6,000 years ago. Why do I ever have to promise anything to you? Instead of that, he comes at us with a reminder and then another one and then another one and then another one, and the language gets more intense of like, this is unchangeable. It is impossible for me to lie. I want you to be more convinced than you've ever been that I am for you, not against you. I will walk you all the way home. Do you hear, do you hear the intensity? It's as if God is, like his intention here is to say, you will know that I'm serious when I promise to take care of you. You're going to know it. You will know that I keep my promises. You will know that I'm abounding in steadfast love, that I show mercy to thousands of generations. You will know that I can be trusted. The level of intensity picks up. And so I just want you to feel it. I want you to know it. I want you to understand it. I want you to appreciate why, why the emphasis, why the re-emphasis, why go back again, why use all the, the swearing and disputes and confirmation and all, why all that? It's very kind of the Lord to go right to our heart and go, you can trust me and I'll make sure you know you can. But that actually is meant, we're meant to live in light of that. We're meant to do something with that, apply it so if I kind of back up and go, okay, here's where we've covered. We started in verse 17, and I, I just wanted to build. So like, what do we do with these promises, these unchangeable promises of God? Verse 17 says, again, 
We read it a moment ago. Let's see it again. When God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath so that by two unchangeable things in which it's impossible for God to lie, and here's where this is going, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We who have fled for refuge. It's a strong word picture, isn't it? The picture is one of a refugee. Heartbreaking images again that you see accounts and stories of refugees fleeing all over Europe again. The refugee, the vulnerable, the one who's at the mercy of someone that will help. The dad who just wants to make sure his family's taken care of. The single mom who knows she could be taken advantage, the refugee. The refugee, the, the elderly person, the one who's lost all their family, all their friends. We who have fled for refuge, I mean, do we hear this? The, the refugee, the one left running in crisis for safety and survival, not pursuing, pursuing all these like dream opportunities, but pursuing for safety and survival. The refugee, the one who's willing to live all the st- leave everything that they've known, all the amount of familiarity and go to a place where they actually have zero familiarity just because they're, they're trying to survive. The one who comes to the conclusion, it'd be better to uproot everything and go to a place where I'm not sure I'm going to try to find a stable life. So when it says, there are those of us who have fled for refuge, it's a strong picture. The picture is, we run to God to keep us safe because there's no hope on our own of guaranteeing our own spiritual survival. We're not gonna make it on our own. So we fled, we're spiritual refugees fleeing to God saying, If I'm going to survive, if I'm going to be safe, if I'm going to have any future, I'm fleeing, I'm running to you. For my safety, for my soul, I am fleeing to you. My spiritual survival is at stake. And I wonder, I wonder, are you there? Is that the story of your life? That that is the story of Christians. Like we flee to God for refuge. And I wonder if you're there, or I wonder if our pride or our independence says, fleeing, I haven't fled it. I'm, I am like, I'm making it in this world. I will, like I'm determined and I'm going to hang in there. And yet, like, I love the picture of we are, we're fleeing to God for refuge. And when you're fleeing for refuge, you begin to, it's very easy, to, I think, to lose your grip on something. So I love the picture here. We who have fled for refuge, we actually find strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. It's like all those layers of intensity now work for our benefit more convincingly, greater, final, guaranteed, swearing, an oath. All of this is is meant to tell us like you can be encouraged. You can be infused with courage now. You can flee for refuge. You keep your grip on on hope. Hope is uh, a word like generally speaking, it's like this expectation an expectation of a future better than you're experiencing now. In general ways, that's what we use, something good, but there's kind of a tension because you're not there, so you're waiting, you want something good, you're expecting something good. But what does hope mean in the Bible when it says we flee to this refuge for a strong encouragement of hope? What is biblical hope? 
I, I love some ideas and thoughts here from the guys that do the Bible Project because they say biblical hope isn't optimism based on the odds. That's a lot of times the way we use the word hope is some sort of optimism based on the odds. Looks like it'll work out. I'm kind of an optimistic person. Maybe you're an optimistic person. We all kind of, you just hope. It actually says biblical optimism isn't based, uh, biblical hope isn't optimism based on the odds. It actually is more than that. It's where it's different is that it's personal. Biblical hope isn't optimism based on the odds. It's a choice to wait for God to bring about a future that's as surprising as a crucified man rising from the dead. Christian hope looks back to the risen Jesus in order to look forward. And so we wait. Our faith is not in like, you know what, chances are this will all clear up. Our hope is in a person who can and will bring a better future. Our hope is in, our confidence, our reliance is in Jesus. Not because we have a lot of conditions that seem to be favorable. Actually, it may go the opposite direction, but our hope is in him. So we hold on to the promises, and maybe even more accurately, we hold on to the one who made the promises. And so in Hebrews, like those promises, and and Sean in his prayer reminded us of several of those promises, but I think even in Hebrews, we have the promise of rest. So it's not always going to feel like we are just weary and worn. There's a promise of rest, and there's a promise of a sympathetic high priest that we can run to who's not going to go, what's your problem, but is going to identify with us in our weakness and answer our requests mercifully, our promises of a rescue, of being rescued by a Savior. And we hold on, even as we hold on. I mean, you can play alternatives all day long. Like, well, I'm not going to hope in that. I I don't know. I feel like that's wishful thinking. So what else would you hold on to? You're going to hold on to your own ability to affect the future? You're going to hold on to luck or chance and go, well, maybe the odds will stabilize me. Nothing feels stabilizing at all about that to me. There are a couple word pictures that the passage closes with. In verse 19, it says, we, we have this, we have this hope as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. You see that hope provides an anchor. Hope provides that, that anchor. So again, nautical, kind of theme And we stay steady. We stay exactly where we need to stay because we are are anchored. Easy to underrate steadiness. But man, when you can depend on something, when you can count on something, when you don't get jostled, you don't get completely overwhelmed, when you realize something is sure. We're not in a permanent state of drift. We're just simply at the mercy of the next thing that will take us all over the place. But when you're anchored by the fact that Jesus is not going to let you go, your heart starts playing tricks on you and yet you have an anchor that's sure and steadfast. Yeah, I mean, we're holding fast, but then we have an anchor holding us. What a great promise to us. There's something else. There's another image. So yeah, we have that sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. Then it also says that we have a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain 
which obviously the writer Hebrews is talking about something that his readers, his listeners would have been familiar with. But in case you're not, in, in ancient Israel, there was a, a shrine, and you see a picture of that. It's called the tabernacle or the tent of meeting. This was actually the specifications for that were given by God himself in Exodus 26. And in that tent, there was a, this was a place of meeting with God where people would come and, and meet and be in the presence of God. They would offer up sacrifices. They would give offerings. In that tent, as you kind of zoom in a little bit, in that tent, there was a curtain, and you see the arrow pointing to a curtain. Other translations are going to say a veil. Exodus 26, like that veil, that curtain was meant to be meant to be made in a very specific way, and it was a partition. You kind of see it there, partitioning off two rooms, the, the holy place, and then there's the most holy place. There's the holy of holies, and it's a partition. And access into the inner place, the inner place behind the curtain was extremely limited. So actually, it was so limited that only one person could go to the inner place behind the curtain. Only one person could do that, and that person was the high priest. And the high priest could only go behind that curtain through the inner place behind the curtain. He could only do that one time a year. Leviticus 16 says, on the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, he could go in and he would offer, because in that inner place would be the Ark of the Covenant. On top of the Ark would be what's called a, a mercy seat, a a place of atonement, sprinkle blood on that. And it was a reminder. I mean, lots of things are going in, going on, right? There's a, clearly a separation between who God is and how separate and holy and pure and clean he is. And there's a recognition, a, a kind of a dividing line. And yet one time a year, the priest could go in there, sprinkle blood, and it was a reminder to the people of God they're brought into right standing. But that's not on God's terms totally on God's terms. You don't just like barge in there and go, well, I belong here. It's totally on God's terms. That's why this passage, I mean, and now you begin to process exactly what's being said, that our hope enters into the inner place behind the curtain. Something interesting happened a few years before Hebrews was written. It actually happened on the very day Jesus died. Matthew, Mark, Luke records it. Mark says it this way. When Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last, there was a curtain of the temple which was torn in two from top to bottom. So now do you see the picture like it is opened up, opened up wide by the death of Jesus? And, and the picture again, going back to verse 19 and 20, is our hope, our hope goes through that that into the inner place, into the very presence of God. And Jesus is a forerunner there. He's gone ahead of us. He's gone ahead of us on our behalf. So our hope in Jesus doesn't only anchor us, it also reminds us of our access. It says you belong, not because you're good, not because you behave, but because of the access Jesus has provided as the forerunner. You are welcomed here. Jesus has gone into that most holy place and opened it wide to us. And so our hope, I mean, think about the picture here. Our hope now is no longer partitioned off of like, you can only get this far with God 
and no more. But now the curtain is torn, the access is free, and God is reminding us not to keep our distance. But the language of Hebrews over and over again is draw near, draw near. Those aren't casual words. It's words from this, this idea of drawing near, approaching, past that inner, past the curtain into the inner place. You draw near to God and you find the high priest pleading for you, welcoming you in, access to the presence of God to find the mercy that you need, the grace to help in your time of need. Passages like this, I kind of like lists. I kind of like to-do lists. I kind of like, okay, this is what I need to do. In light of this, I'll do these three things. Passages like this, they they don't really serve up lists to you three action steps to follow. I mean, it just doesn't really serve up like that. But the burden of my heart all week long, it's actually a couple burdens that I felt that I want to share with you today. Those burdens come in this way. I I have a major burden. I don't want anyone in this room to lose hope. Despite the fact that I know there are things working against your hope. I want you to be reminded and I can't do that on my own, but I prayed God would reinforce hope that he would use layer after layer after layer to remind you of how serious he is, how seriously he takes keeping his promises. I've wanted you to have that anchor. I wanted you to know that you have access to burdens that you feel like are unbearable, and they would be to you, but he is there ready to share so that's been on my mind. I, I don't want you to lose hope. But then I've also, like, I've been praying just knowing, like, it's not just you individually. We're as a church, and I've been burdened that we would be pouring into each other's lives, reminding, like, I don't know what to do, but let's flee to Jesus for refuge. And somewhere along the line, there might be a text sent, an email sent, prayers prayed. Maybe only God sees it but we are invested so deeply in each other's lives that it's not only that I'm fleeing for refuge to Jesus, but I'm praying that others would. I'm praying that when their world begins to unravel and they say, I can't take one more thing, and then the one more thing happens, that somewhere along the line they're surrounded by believers who are saying, let's go to the inner place behind the curtain and talk to our Father about your need and about yours and about yours and about yours. And let's, let's look to Jesus, who's the forerunner, working together, walking together. I wonder if I could like, take those burdens that I have of you holding on and us walking together, and if I could take those to the Lord and pray, maybe you'd pray with me as well there in your seats. Let's do that. Father, it's... Uh, Life can be very, very burdensome and can feel like there aren't a lot of alternatives and no good ones. Yet we're reminded of the hope that we have because of you. And I thank you even more specifically today, Father, for your intense reminders that you are bent on keeping your promises to us. So for those of us who need the underline, the highlight, saying it four or five or six or 17 times. Thank you. 
And I pray you would see all of us running to you for refuge, not trying to make it on our own, but running to you for refuge, holding on to you as we know we are steadied by the anchor that we have. So Lord, fill us with hope. Only you can do this. The person that's in the deepest despair, the person who's had the deepest thoughts, the darkest thoughts. Lord, I don't know what else to say, but I pray that you would rescue them from that despair. May they find hope today. Hope in what is true. Hope in your work on the cross. So Lord, we give you these burdens. Only you can bear them. I call out to you to do immeasurably more than we could ask or think. Thank you for hearing us, Lord. Thank you, Jesus, for taking our prayers to the Father. Thank you, Spirit, for enabling us to pray when we're weak.